The scripture, that, the scripture reading this morning comes out of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. That is page 1120 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Pew Bible, we encourage you to read along with us. Once again, that is page 1120. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For once, for, for one we will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thankful for our visitors this morning. We thank, thank you for coming and joining with us, sitting in on what we do here at Beaver and gathering of the saints. And so this Lord's Day, we want to open his word. We want to exegete the scripture. We want to see what God has in store for us today, what he has to say to us via his living and active word. And so Reese has already read from that. So I hope your Bibles are there. Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter five of Romans, Romans chapter five, verse six. Paul writes, he says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Through him, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Have you ever noticed how a jeweler, when he uh, shows you a diamond... Me and you've gone, we've had to buy engagement rings for our wife. What will the jeweler do? He'll lay out the diamond, but yet he'll put it upon a, a black mat. He'll lay the black mat out and he'll show the diamond and he'll put it up under a light. And the reason he does this, the reason he puts it behind the black mat is to show the beauty of the diamond itself. It brings out the beautiness of it. It brings out the sparkles of it, does it not? And when he shines the light upon it, you can see the diamond for what it is. No other distractions around you. But yet you see the diamond. The diamond is exalted all, all the more. The brilliance of the stone, it shines all the more. Much like the consumer with the diamond, sometimes we as humans, we can't understand God's love because maybe we haven't seen it in light of the right background of what Scripture teaches. The Apostle Paul, this morning, he does just this here in our Scripture, and he wants us to make sure that the truth of God's love is drilled deep into our minds. He drills it so deep, and he, and he does that by darkening the background. He does that by showing who we are in, in sin, who we are before we come to Christ. He does this to pull the beauty of God, to pull His love out so that we can see it in its brilliance. It is the crown jewel which stands out among all things in the Bible is the love of God. Paul, through the first four chapters, let me catch you up on a little bit of context here. We need to know the context before we can understand what Paul's saying here. Through the first four chapters, Paul has been laying out the, the case for the condemnation of all mankind. Through chapters 1 and chapters 2, he has shown in every which way mankind is sick. Not COVID sick, but sick. Sin sick, wicked, defiled, depraved, morally bankrupt. And in chapter 3, he sums it up by saying that there is none righteous, not even one. He piles it on like a good lawyer does, and he says, None seek after God. All have turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. He goes on to describe in chapter 3 how a sinful man is justified before a holy God. He makes the case through the rest of chapters 3 and 4 how it's not by being good or by taking of some ceremonial rite or ritual that justifies you before God. It's not by doing good or the works of the law which justifies you before a holy God, but it is by the basis of Christ's righteousness in which you are justified. God has graciously provided the free gift of righteousness that comes from Him on the basis of faith alone. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Sola fide, faith alone. 
Paul reaches back to the Old Testament and proves that salvation has always been through faith. And he pulls it into the New Testament. It's never been of works. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul turns the reader's directions toward the benefits that we have through being justified before God. Justified. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in my classes, or in, in Wednesday night class, was being declared righteous. Ultimately, the chief privilege we have as one being justified, Paul talks about, a true child of God, is that we have peace with God. A true child of God has peace with God. We have access to God like never before. We can super rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, Paul puts it. We have the love of God. We have been given the Holy Spirit, and not only these gifts, but we can rejoice within the afflictions, within the trials, within the tribulations that we go through in our life. Doesn't that set up well within the theme of Philippians that we're talking about? Look at the, the, uh, the or not the consequences, but the circumstances by which Paul is surrounded. He is in chains, but yet he has hope of Christ that is within him. But these things, they bring about a perseverance within the life of the believer, leading to a proven character which ultimately leads to hope. As we come to our scripture today within verse 6, Paul has been climbing the mountain of justification, this, this pinnacle, one of the pinnacles or the peaks of Romans, and he's been climbing it as, as if you were going to Pike's Peak, and many of you have done that, and as you're driving up along, there's numerous spots that are off the roadway in which people have said that this is a beautiful spot to, to stop and take a look at. And as you're climbing up that mountain, what Paul's wanting to do is he's wanting to pull off the side and he's wanting to look at the scenery for a second. Let's take a look, let's take a brief moment and just gaze in for what God has in store for us. Let's examine the features a little bit more closely and that's what Paul's doing here. And, and if you look here, in the, it's the first time in chapter 5, of verse 5, that the love of God is mentioned within Romans. Paul says, it has been poured out. Look with me, if you will. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out. Not in small volumes, but it has been poured out from heaven above. What a wonderful thought that is. Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, pulls off the road and wants to park and develop upon this truth because it's such a beautiful truth. In verses 6 through 11, that's what Paul does. He extrapolates and amplifies this love of God that's been deposited in the hearts of those who have been justified by the presence of the Holy or within this presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a monumental passage this morning dealing with the security of salvation. And I want to I introduce the thinking of this just real quick. Introduce this kind of thinking. Get our minds wrapped around this here thinking of what I think Paul is getting at and what we need to be thinking about throughout this scripture this morning. We, we live in a day of unfaithfulness, do we not? We live in a day where husbands are unfaithful to their wives. They have, yet, they have not fulfilled the vows in which they've took. Wives have been unfaithful to their husbands. Children are unfaithful to the principles by which their parents have taught them. Parents are unfaithful to teach their children the principles that are within the Bible. Politicians are unfaithful to every word that they, they, they cling to. Employers are unfaithful to their employees. Employees unfaithful to their employers. Pastors at times are unfaithful to their congregation. They're unfaithful to the flock of God. But yet there is one who is faithful and not unfaithful, and that is God. God has never been unfaithful in His Word. God has never been unfaithful in His actions towards mankind. And God has never been unfaithful to His actions toward, to the people that He loves. I suppose at times that if we acknowledge the fact that we Christians have been unfaithful to God. But yet God is the unmovable rock. God is the faithful one that we put our hope into. He is the anchor in which Hebrews says. Faithfulness is a theme that we've seen throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah says this, faithfulness is the belt around God's waist. That's a beautiful way of putting it, right? It's that which encompasses him and holds everything else together. 
The psalmist in Psalm 36, 5, verse 5, 36, verse 5 says, Thy mercy, O God, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness is unto the clouds. One area of God's faithfulness stands out, and it's the area of keeping us. It's the area of securing us in our salvation. We, we see this throughout the Old Testament. We see throughout the New Testament. And, and the verses are too numerous for me to go over this morning. I'm, I'm for lack of time. But one verse that we saw just a couple of weeks ago in Philippians that Shane talked about, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, is being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the perseverance of the saints and as Shane rightfully preached, that is the securing of our salvation to the very end. And one very important aspect of this perseverance is that it is the Holy Spirit who gives the believer the sense and assurance that God loves him. God has poured out within the heart of all believers his love through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says here in verse 5. He says, back to verse 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within what? Within the hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And this is God's faithfulness sealed within the believer's life. And what Paul means to explain here in verses 6 through 11 is why the pouring out of God's love through the Holy Spirit, assures believers of hope, especially hope in salvation. If you have a lack of hope in your salvation this morning, if you do not have assurance of your salvation this morning, then sit idly by and be ready for the God, the Word of God is going to rock you this morning and it is going to be rock solid and letting you know you should have full assurance on what God has done in your life and what Christ has done upon the cross. And that you can have hope in, and in that you can be, know that God is a faithful God. The Holy Spirit is the agent by which God works in the life of the believer. He is the gift of God's love. And that's a great testimony of the love of God itself, is it not? Would God plant his spirit, the third member of the Trinity, within the life of a believer if he didn't love that believer? We alone know that God loves us, and the Spirit points to that. Not, not only does the Holy Spirit initiate the Christian life, but He is the one who is the sanctifier, He is the convictor, and He is the helper to ensure our preservation. Do you see this morning the faithfulness of God here? May I stress that this endurance in the faith does not rest upon our strength. It doesn't rest in the strength that Blake can muster up that Phil can muster up, that Chris can muster up. It doesn't rest in that, and thank God it doesn't because I have no strength. In fact, the preserving effect of the Holy Spirit is so strong that the perseverance of the saints can be better said the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints because the process by which we are kept in the state of grace is something that is accomplished not by us but by God. Our confidence in our preservation should not be in our ability to persevere. Rather, our confidence, our confidence this morning, rests in the power of Christ to sustain us with his grace and by the power of his intercession, he is the one that is going to bring us safely home. Praise God. Amen. So if a Christian goes through a period when he loses his sense of God loving him or doubts his salvation, it is because he has quenched the ministry of the Spirit of God. But it isn't that God has left them. And it certainly isn't that God doesn't love you. And in a season of thanksgiving, I hope that this verse gives you something to be thankful for. If you've ever asked the question this morning, how do we know that God loves? Paul explains it right here. And in summary, it's Christ's death. Christ's death. So verses 6 through 11 acts as a mini commentary for verse 5. What Paul is doing is he's given the reason why the love of God is so great and so rich and so unparalleled and so unprecedented and ultimately why we should never forget it and why we should remember how faithful God is. 
So Paul, this morning, there's going to be three points. Paul gives us three explanations, very simple points that you can follow. And he, the, the first explanation is in verse 6. The second explanation is going to be in verse 7. And the third explanation is in verse 10. And we can see that, as we have taught some of my Bible students, is, is that we see that by the word for. That is a term of explanation, and that's how Paul leads us. One of Paul's favorite words in Romans is the word for. It's a small word, but it's yet something that catches our attention and draws us to what he's fixing to say. Look with me, if you will, at verse 6. He says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you have your Bibles this morning, and maybe not the Pew Bible, but yet if you have your personal Bible, take your pen or your highlighter and highlight these words for me, if you will. Look at me. Go ahead and look at uh, verse 6. Highlight the word helpless and ungodly. I hope you do write in your Bibles, by the way. It, it's a good... It, it, they, they print more, so you can always get another one if you don't want one that's written. But man, I, mine is, 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 is to the point where I can't even read it anymore sometimes. But uh, write in your Bible. It's okay. Make notes. Circle things. Verse 6, helplessly ungodly. The word sinners in verse 8. Underline that or circle that. And then the word enemies within verse 10. These are words that are going to help us to understand the text, and, and I think they are, uh, they are keys to understanding. And as we go through this study today, I'll expand upon these, these key words. Paul says here in verse 6, for while we, and the we is very important. Who is, it, is Paul's talking to here? Yeah, he's talking to the believers. He's talking to the believers at Rome here. Those that have been justified before God by the blood of Jesus Christ, who were once unbelievers. We were once unbelievers who rebelled against God. We hated God. We were totally depraved. And if you don't believe me, just go back and just read chapters of Romans chapters 1 from verse 18 through chapters 3 of 20. And Paul lays it out. And then you come back to me and you tell me that if you're not depraved or wicked or devout. Paul here is reminding the believers at Rome and thus us as well that we were once unconverted. Hating God and rebellion against God. And as we see here, helpless against God. That's what he says. While we were still helpless... Paul has the same thoughts at the beginning of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving the wrath. Paul describes the believer as someone who was once helpless. The Greek word that Paul uses here literally means without strength, totally powerless, impotent. It depicts the terrible state of despair that man is within. Without Christ, man has absolutely nothing in him that gives him the ability to pursue God or his holiness. Man cannot attribute anything to earn his, God's acceptance. Man is utterly weak, unable, strengthless, and powerful, powerless. Paul wants to make sure that we don't forget where we once were. He's reminding us, you were helpless. We were helpless to escape sin, helpless to escape the wrath of God, helpless to escape hell. For some of you this morning, you find yourself in the, this exact condition today. You're outside of Christ. This is the state that you're in right now. There's only two states you're either outside of Christ or you're within Christ. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. You're helpless to save yourself. In fact, the Word of God says that you are an enemy of God and that you have no more ability, no strength to live a righteous life, and no strength to save yourself. Paul goes on to say that while we were in that helpless state, a state where there was nothing in him that could seek after God, nothing in him that could save himself, it says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. At exactly the right time in God's timetable, God sent Christ upon this earth to die upon a cross. It had to be that right time. It had to be Christ who died. This phrase brings with it that Christ's death was not an afterthought, but it was the manner in which God had chosen from eternity past to save sinners. Never was there a plan B in which to save sinners. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ was that substitute. He died one time for who? 
For who did he die for? For the ungodly. Those who are in Adam, those born into this world, those whose hearts depraved, Christ died for ungodly people who have no respect for God whatsoever, who are helpless, who don't seek after God. It says here, Christ died for the ungodly. Meaning on behalf of, for the sake of, for the benefit of. The just for the unjust, the best for the worst, the godly for the ungodly, the holy for the unholy. That's what God did. This term ungodly means irreverent and pious. We weren't, we weren't given the due reverence to God that he deserved is what he's saying. Romans 1.18 puts it this way, for the wrath of God is against all. It's the same word here that Paul uses for ungodly, for the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The same word. The wrath of God is against all those who have a defective relationship with God. Romans 3.18 sums it up this way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Before you came to Christ, and if you're outside of Christ today, you have no fear of God. You say, Blake, well, that, that, that wasn't me. Man, I was a good dude, man. I was a good child, right? That wasn't me. I've, I've been a pretty good person. I've never hated God. I've never had my fist in enmity with God. I'm not as bad as you say I am. Oh, but you are. And oh, but the Bible says you were. You have been and you are. It may not look like it from the outside, but the Bible says we're totally depraved within the inside. And our actions will bear fruit. Your nature is within Adam. The sin nature has been passed down from you from your federal head, which is Adam. It is depraved and nothing in it seeks after God. It's ungodly, has no respect for Him. But that's what makes the love of God so great. That Christ would die for helpless and ungodly people such as us. So the idea in Paul's first explanation this morning is that since Christ saved us when we were ungodly, and came to rescue us when we were without strength, we can never be in a worse condition than that. There is nothing he will not do to keep us, is the point. If there's nothing in us to attract him to love us in the first place, then what could be in there us to make him stop loving us in the second place? The hard part's been done. You see the point he's making? What a great love that God has for us. Look at me with you, if you will, for the second explanation. Verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Paul, again, uses the word for, and it's just staccato fashion. It's a boom, it's a boom, boom, after one after another. He sets them up and he, he just keeps on going staccato-like. He's a great teacher. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Paul, now what he does is, let's unpack this for just a second. He pulls in an illustration is what he's doing, okay? He, he, he's going to use a human analogy. And he's going to contrast God's love with man's love, okay? It, it's, uh, by righteous man here, he, he, he means someone who is in high standing immorality within the community, within, uh, within our knowing, within man's sight who treats others fairly. He isn't talking about a righteous man in a spiritual sense. Paul's argument here is this. One will hardly die for someone who is upright, someone moral, someone good. There's rare examples within the world where people have given up their lives for others. We see soldiers do this. We see firemen do this. But it's, a, but it's rare. It, it's not something that people do daily. And, 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 but it is, again, that's in the minority. And that's why Paul uses the term hardly. And, and here's the point. A fireman may risk his life to rescue someone from an arson-related fire, but the chance of that fireman offering to go to prison on behalf of the arsonist ain't happening. That's the point Paul's trying to make here. He, he adds to the argument, though perhaps for a... He says, okay, okay, maybe not for a righteous man... But perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even die. Paul is saying that, well, maybe for a good man, something, one might die. But it's very rare. And that term good here means someone who is upright, moral, uh, who's excellent by human standards. 
Paul extending this same thought, he's going from the greater to the lesser. And ultimately he's saying is, is ain't nobody going to do it. That's not what's happening here. It, it just doesn't compute in our minds, right, John? It doesn't do that. I mean, there's not many people that I'm willing to die for. There's very few. But look with me here, if you will. Let your eyes go to this verse right here. Mark it. This next verse, verse 8. Oh how, oh, how major doctrines, notice this, major doctrines swing on very small hinges, very small words. It, it, this is the John 3.16 of Romans. It, it's such a knockout punch. It's a blow to the jaw that you have nothing to stand upon after this other than you in awe of what God has said. He says, but God, what a powerful statement that is. Thank goodness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, thank God for the buts within the Bible. Paul says in the last verse that, this verse that man on earth won't even die for someone who is deserving, right? Someone who's righteous. Man won't even do that. He says, but verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we've already made the point of who us is or who us was. But God, who is so unlike man, he demonstrates. Present tense, mind you, if you will. It's not past tense, not demonstrated, but demonstrates. He, 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 his love is demonstrated through the preaching of God's word through the ministering of his word today, through evangelism, through his church. God's love is demonstrated this way. His love is put out in the open. It's not hidden. It shouldn't be hidden. Ultimately, it was put out on open on display upon the cross. That was a living, clear demonstration of God's love for sinners such as you and I. And sometimes in this demonstration of love, it's present. It's not just limited to one past event, but it is relevance for the present day as well. God demonstrating his love for us. I hope you can see his love demonstrated within this church today. If not, we need to repent. We need, Beaver, I hope we're demonstrating God's love today within the week, work week, not just on Sunday mornings. We need to be demonstrating God's love. He says here, but God demonstrates his own love. And it's an echo of verse 5 where Paul says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Nothing that we've done, it's everything that God's doing. He's pouring this out. He he's, he's demonstrates his own love. God's own love disting is distinguished from any other love that you and I have ever had or felt towards one another. Much like righteousness that comes down from the throne of God, this same love comes down from the throne of God. It's an agape love. It's an undeserved, unmerited, unconditional love, a sacrificial love. And here's the crazy thing. This sacrificial love, it gives to itself the seeking of the highest good of the object loved. Sacrificial love seeks to give its greatest good to the object loved. This makes a difference from our love, does it not? Think about this. This is the difference between God's love and our love because our love are for the object's in which that are good. We love things that are good or that give back to us. Case in point, I love my wife. I have an agape love for my wife and my kids. Why? Because there's something inherently good that she gives to me, her kindness, her beauty, my kids' generosity, the love of my kids that they have for me. That's the kind of love I have a love for them because why? They give something back to me. There's a lot coming back for them, from them that, toward my heart that melts my heart. However, the love of God is different than that. You see, it's a, it's a higher love because God's love is that which is, uh, he loves that which is unlovely. He loves that which can't give back. He loves that which is defiled, which is wretched, which has cussed his name, which has not shown him honor. It doesn't give back. In fact, it's one that's hated him. The scripture says he demonstrated it toward us. And the us refers to the fallen, wretched mankind. Absolutely nothing in us to love. 
That's why we pray the prayer, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense, does it, Phil? He goes on to say, while we were yet sinners. He just piles it on. This, this, is, this is when he loved us, okay? This is when he loved us. It's great, y'all. Notice he didn't say God demonstrated his love to us while we were doing good or while we were at our best or while we were clean or following the rules or doing good things for other people. God demonstrated his love for us when? While we were utter train wrecks. He says sinner speaks to, uh, uh, to falling short of God's glory, falling short of the divine standard, missing the mark, not just off an inch, but missing it by a long shot. Paul has already stated that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and, and there was nothing in us that commended us to God. God loved us when we were foul, when we were wretched, rotten sinners, but that's a different kind of love, a love so rich that it involved the shedding of the blood of his only true and begotten son, the diamond of heaven. And Paul, he doesn't stop there. He, the love of God goes even further. Look at this. You say, well, how can it go even further? Watch. Verse 9. Check this out. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The phrase much more than, it's very important that we see that. He just adds on. He, he, he goes, it says it's far beyond this. Far beyond Christ dying for us while we were yet sinners. It goes beyond this. He says, he says, having now been justified by his blood. And Paul's reaching back, looking at a past act. Uh, verse 1, Paul says, in verse chapter 5 is, he says, we are justified by faith. And that's looking at it from man's point of view. Yes, faith is what justifies us from man to God. But now Paul looks at it from God to man. And what God demands is that blood be shed. He's, he, he, he demands that we must be justified by his blood. Yes, we're to put our faith into him, but then it turns around. This is what he had to do. This was an act of love, his blood shed, so that you and I could be saved. We are justified, a one-time act at the moment of conversion, when he declared us to be righteous. He goes on to say, look here with me, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And this is the much more that he just said. This is the much more. We shall be saved. Not only are we justified before a holy God, but we are saved from his fiery wrath. Man, he just keeps adding it on. Man, what a great day. We see this word wrath come up in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. I've already stated that once. It's a present tense wrath that Paul talks about in verse 18 of chapter 1. It's an abandonment wrath. For you outside of Christ today, if you're outside of Christ and you don't know him, you are currently with under this abandonment wrath. You are currently under this wrath of God. It abides upon you. It is a present tense. And the further you stiff on God, the further you drift down the, the, the river, the further you get away from him. And at some point in your life, there is an abandonment of God. And that is a scary place to be. But that's not the, that's not the wrath that Paul has in mind here. Paul has in mind the future wrath of God, the judgment throne of God, this fiery wrath of God. The, the, the word wrath carries the idea of a heated passion, an excited emotion as a bull breathes within a, within a ring. He's, he's breathing, and that's the wrath that God has against us, and that will be the wrath that God pours out upon those outside of Christ. It is a holy fury. His wrath is not uncontrolled emotions. The scary part of this is his holy wrath is controlled. That's the scary part. It's violent. It's explosive anger that is expressed in severe punishment and torment upon all unbelievers. As believers, that's where we once stood, under the wrath of God. We stood under the wrath of God, and as unbelievers, if we would have continued within, with that, we would have faced the wrath of God, the fiery wrath of God. Here's the point Paul's making. He says, since God has already done the really difficult thing, that is, justified impious sinners, we may be absolute confident that he will do what is by comparison very easily and namely save us from his wrath at, at last those who are already righteous in his sight. Paul says, he's done the hard part. He's justified you through the work of Jesus. He saved you when you were a sinner. He says, the easy part is that he's going to keep you from the fiery wrath of God. Amen? You can't say amen. Vodibachum says, ouch. Say, ouch. 
This is the love of God that's done this, that has saved you and me from being pounded forever under the fury of his wrath and that keeps us saved from his wrath. It's just huge. An enormous salvation has been granted towards us. It's been demonstrated towards us. It should make us fall upon our knees at this very thought. As believers, God has saved us from himself. And in awe as we may be with reverence to our crucified Savior, there still lingers the question this morning that reason and sound judgment must ask, why? Why did God have to send his son to suffer death? Why did God so torment his beloved son and kill him in such a horrible way? Why? Think about that. Why, why did he have to do that? Was it to save my soul? I know that he did so that I might live. The scripture tells me that. He suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring me to God. But was there, was there no other way that the omnipotent God could, could, could take care of this? I mean, he's all powerful. He can do what he wants to. Was all this done to demonstrate the greatness of God's love to me? Yeah, the scripture says so. But couldn't God reveal his love in some other way? Why did he have to slay his sinless, perfect son? Have you ever thought about that? Only one answer suffices. Justice. Justice had to be served. There was no necessity for God to save anyone. Salvation is altogether the free gift of his grace. But as Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The justice of God had to be satisfied in order for God to save his people, Jay. And the only thing that could ever satisfy the justice of God is the blood of his son, the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Understand this. Good point, I think, that we need to take is God's wrath will be satisfied. God's justice will be satisfied. One of two ways. It will be satisfied either upon those who don't believe upon him, who have not placed their faith in him. The wrath will be poured out forever and ever and ever and ever. But for those inside Christ today, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the wrath has already been poured out. It's been poured out on Christ. That's propitiation. That's true love. Greater love has no more than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Christ did. So a major point we see in Paul's explanation is to increase the assurance of Christians that God is for us and will be for us through all tribulations and through the last great outpouring of wrath on the world. Look at this final explanation. <clears throat> Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, there it is again, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul at this point, he isn't backing up. He isn't ramping up. He's ramping up from God, helpless to ungodly to sinners. And now he says enemies. This is who we once were. The backdrop just went pitch black. You see how Paul has painted the picture? It's gone from a lighter shade of black to the darkest shade of black there is. You and I today, not only were we helpless, not only were we ungodly, not only were we sinners, but we were in fact enemies of God. And that is a scary place to be. Before the word ever pierced your heart and before you and I ever cried out to God in repentance and faith, you were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. We lived in defiance in him and his ways. We were at war with God. We were at real, in rebellion to him, enmity with him. We hated him. And it was God who took the initiative. He was the one actively doing the reconciling, the one bringing you and I into peace with him. Without his reconciliation work, we would still be in defiance of him today. Verse 1 of this chapter says we have peace with God, not the peace of God, but now we have peace with God. We can take that home to us today and say, I have peace with God. And it took the slaying of Christ to reconcile to him. Paul uses the same term, much more, that we saw earlier. And Paul's making the argument that if while we were in our helpless state, while we were sinners, ungodly enemies of God, God did all this. 
He, he sent his son to die for us, to justify us, to make us righteous, to save us from his wrath. How much more will he keep us saved now that we are reconciled friends and daughters and da of his family? You see how he's done gone from the lesser to the greater? Now he's going to keep us saved. I've done all this. Why wouldn't I keep you saved? It's an argument for eternal security. If you have doubted your salvation to this moment, I hope this verse has given you hope. He has done the hard stuff. He says, I'm going to keep you. He says, if I've done all that, I'm going to keep you eternally saved. And he did it while we hated him. And now that we're reconciled to him, he'll be the one keeping us saved. Salvation is to be understood in three verb tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Justification, sanctification, glorification. It's a package deal. It comes with it all. Man, you don't get no better deal than this. Paul doesn't stop there. He just goes higher and higher. He says, and not only this, I don't know what else he can bring. He just says, I give you more. What are you saying, Paul? There's actually more. Yeah, yeah, there's more. He says here, get with me, we're, we're done. We also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Exult, super rejoice. Not just rejoice, but we can super rejoice in what he has done for us. It's important. Now understand this, he says, we can exult in God through Jesus Christ through whom we have now what? Received. Don't pass over that little word right there. We have received it. Salvation is a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We didn't deserve it. But he gave it to us graciously. He, it was handed down from heaven as a gift purchased by the blood of Jesus. We receive it by faith. It's not a reward for the righteous, but it is a gift for the guilty. Receive the reconciliation. How do we respond to the word today? How do, we, how do we respond to this? Well, as Christians, for believers today, who have repented and believed in the righteous work of Christ, we shouldn't be bored. We shouldn't have a gloomy look upon our face. We should be in awe. We should stand up and yell, thank God for the great salvation that he has given us. We should be confident. We should have joy, as Philippians talks about. We should be confident of this very thing that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that bring those words to more and more power? Doesn't it bring it to life of what God has done for us? We should be fired up for what God has done for us today. Fired up what the Lord Christ has done for us and how he rescued us from the wrath that is due us. We, we, when we attempt to contemplate God's redemptive work, we are lost in astonishment. When we think of the unutterable depths of shame and sorrow into which the Lord of glory entered to save us, we are all in staggering. And I can't help but what Paul says in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To him be the glory. That should be our song this morning, folks. It's an eternal love that he knew us from the foundation of the world. This isn't a knee-jerk reaction, something he planned, and that is even more beautiful. When you know that he chose you from the foundation of the world and he sets you with Christ, the only response we have is, my goodness, you did that for me. And how do we respond to his love? We respond... ungratefulness. We respond in not doing what he's asked us to do. We respond in bitterness. 
we respond and not sharing this good news? How do we not share this good news? That's the other application point is, is if you knew what God's done for you and you knew where you once were, for those outside of Christ, they're headed for a fiery hell. What are we doing about it, beaver? Are we sharing this beautiful word of God? Are we holding it to ourselves? There's people who are under the wrath of God right now. There's people who are dying every minute of the day. There's people all around the world who right now are waking up, not into glory, but into hell, and will face the fiery wrath of God forever and ever. And what are we doing? That's our response. One other response this morning, and I'm done. For those who are outside of Christ and never experienced the love of God, I say to you, the evidence is laid out before you. I can't lay it out any clearer. Paul can't say it any clearer. You're helpless to save yourself from the wrath of God to come. You're ungodly to a holy God. You are a sinner. You've missed the mark in every which way, and hell awaits you. You're an enemy of God. The God of the universe is marching against you and he will come against you and you will answer for every sin, for every evil act that you've done, for every evil act that you have thought about doing. Nothing will go unpunished. But God extends his love to you today in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He extends it. He says it's it's poured out to you. The gospel is simply Jesus Christ. He is the son of God, the son of man, sent into this world to be born of a virgin that he might be sinless, to keep the law perfectly, the law that he might be, the law that you and I break each and every day. He's ready to give God's righteousness to you so that you might be perfect standing before God, that he went to a cross where he was lifted up to die and there upon the cross, the sin of everyone who would believe was placed upon him and was transferred to him. And he, knew no, he who knew no sin, God made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was the great exchange of the cross. The worst of us laid upon him, the best of, us, best of him given to us. He reconciled sinful man to holy God by his sin-bearing, substitutionary, vicarious death upon that Christ cross. He appeased God's wrath towards all those who would believe. It would be by his death that Jesus Christ provided salvation to all those who would call upon his name. If you do not know him today, don't place your, don't place your faith, don't place your, your hope and your works today. Guess what? We've laid out the case. You don't have good works. You don't have good works. You're not going to heaven that way. But Christ says, it is finished. Not I am finished. He rose from the grave. He walked out of the tomb as a living, victorious Savior. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and whosoever calls upon the name shall, the Lord shall be saved. He is mighty to save to the uttermost to all who would call upon him. Come to him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And he says, follow me. Repent of your sins. And he says, I'll save you. He says, I'll place the Spirit within you. And he says, I'll clothe you with righteousness from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, and I will wash you as white as snow. What a great Savior we serve. Amen. What a great Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Folks, today, because we're at peace with God through Christ's death on the cross, because we stand in grace, we have a promised future glory. And I don't blush to say that that's my hope. I hope that's what you say today, that that is your hope today. I'm not ashamed to say to anybody upon the face of the earth that I'm going to be in glory with Christ someday, radiating the eternal glory of God throughout the eternal Jerusalem. That's my destiny, and I hope it's your destiny as well. That's where I'm going, and I'm not going to be ashamed because hope in God, hope in Jesus, it never disappoints. Where this world disappoints in you, the hope in Jesus never does. You put your hope in Him, you'll never be disappointed. When you came to Jesus Christ and you embraced him, you said, my hope is in you, God, that you're going to keep me till I'm glorified. You will never be disappointed. You won't. I promise you. You'll never be ashamed to name his name. How do you get the feeling you're secure? I hope it's more than a feeling. I hope you take it to heart. We're secure because of what he's done in our life. A happy Thanksgiving to each one of you. I pray for each one of you. I church prays for each one of you. I church prays for our visitors. I ask that you pray for your pastor this week as he recovers from the flu. I ask that you pray for each one that is sick. We love you and we thank you for coming this morning. We 
ask that if you have any questions, anything about salvation, anything about justification or sanctification or anything, any of those big words that we said today, propitiation, you can come talk to me. You can come talk to many of these great men and women who love the word. They can explain it to you, sit down with you, pray for you. May God's grace be upon you. And I'm going to pray here in just a second, and we're going to, we're going to sing. I think it's fitting that we sing the first song that we sung today. Christ, our hope in life and death. And I hope that as we sing that today, that after this sermon that you lifted up high and you lifted up glorious and that you can sing, he is my hope in life and death. And then we'll be dismissed. Grace to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are overwhelmed at what it is ours is in Christ. The security that is ours so undeserved. We thank you. We thank you that you saved us when we didn't deserve it. You keep us when we don't deserve it. And you'll make us like Christ, which we don't deserve at all. And so we thank you for your grace that is extended to us, that your peace is ours and that you've filled us with your hope. And our hope will never be disappointed. And Lord, we pray today that we might demonstrate our gratitude, not by taking advantage of your grace, not by saying, if I'm secure, I'll do whatever I want that might truly betray that we're not even your children in reality at all. For if we were, we wouldn't trade upon such grace. But we would have a strong confidence this morning. I pray this over our people today, that we have a continued and a renewed steadfast in the hope and the rejoicing, firm to the end. Thank you, God, for the redeeming us to be like Christ. And to that end, we pray. For that moment, we wait. And for those in the midst who have never come to Jesus Christ, who are watching via live stream, who have never been yet brought into the glorious security of justification by faith, may they embrace the Savior even now. We pray this in His blessed name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.